Laura asked me this morning when I was getting in the car, she said, how do you feel? And I said, you know when you're, you're about to get on the free fall at Six Flags? And you're, you're kind of excited, but at the same time you're like, why did I say I'd do this? Um, that's a little bit how I feel, but um, I do want to begin by expressing my appreciation to Brother Ron, and I don't see him, but thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate you letting me do this, and I appreciate each of you. It's much easier to stand up here when I see um, people that I know and love and, and care about me, so it, it's very good to do that. But I was thinking this week, when Brother Ron called last week, I thought about a movie from the early 1990s. Um, it was a football movie called Rudy. How many of you remember Rudy? Well, if you remember in that story, Rudy was a young man. His name was Rudy Rudiger, and he loved Notre Dame football. And he wanted really bad after he graduated high school to go play football at the University of Notre Dame. But uh, unfortunately, Rudy had no business playing college football anywhere, much less at somewhere like uh, Notre Dame. But if we fast forward in the story, what ultimately happens is Rudy does become a part of the scout team at Notre Dame. And if you know about the scout team on a, on a team, they're not really what we would consider real players, but they're kind of the guys who are really probably never going to get into the game. So what they do is they pretend each week in practice like they're the other team. They learn their formations and they learn their plays and they, they run those against the first team. And so, yeah, Rudy did get in on a few plays in the last game of the season, but for the most part, he was just like a living, breathing, blocking dummy uh, for the rest of the team. And so I was thinking, I thought, well, if Brother Ron is what we call the first team, and then we've got James and Lynn and David and Ed at second, third, fourth, and fifth. You decide what order. I'm not going to do that. Um, and I thought, you know, I've never really seen a depth chart that goes down to like the sixth team. And I thought, well, you know, I am the Rudy Rudiger of Meadowbrook Baptist <laughs> preaching team. So if you're visiting today, you know what you're in for? Um, maybe you'll come back next week. But seriously, I am very honored to have this opportunity, and now I'd like to open us up with a word of prayer. So please pray with me. Father in heaven, you know that I am insufficient for this task this morning, but you, O oh God, are my sufficiency today. I am but a frail and feeble vessel, not fit for this job. So come, Holy Spirit, come now. Guide the words of my mouth even now. Open the hearts of those who hear my voice even now. And glorify yourself today, Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning we will be looking at a very important passage from Paul's letter to the Roman church, which was written in about 57 AD, which was about 25 years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've read through Romans before, you know that it is a very theologically dense portion of Scripture, and it gives us a very good look into the theology of Paul and into the doctrines of the early Christian church. And the passage we will be looking at this morning, Romans 1, 16 and 17, as David read, have often been called the theme of the book of Romans. And at the time of the letter, Paul had never visited the church in Rome. We know that he wanted to go there, but he had not visited yet. And we're not really even sure who founded the church at Rome. 
But we are sure of Paul's intent for the letter, which was twofold. First, Paul sought to address various issues that would have been of interest to both the Jewish and Gentile believers in the church, like the question of how am I saved? How am I made right before God? Is it through keeping the law or is it through faith in Jesus Christ? But second, Paul also had another reason. He was seeking support for a missionary journey to take the gospel to Spain. The early church, it's very clear, in the gospels and in Acts was a a mission-minded church. And their missionaries needed support like our missionaries and our mission organizations do today. But we also see in Romans 1.15 the verse that immediately precedes this verse that Paul had another desire. In verse 15, Paul says that he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are a part of the church at Rome. And now at first when we think of that, we were like, we would, might ask, why would Paul be interested in preaching the gospel to people who are already a part of a church in Rome? Well, for Paul, the gospel is not simply an initial call to saving faith alone, but the gospel is meant to be something that is lived out and that we return to in our daily walk of the Christian life. It is a mistake for us to think that once we have believed in the gospel, that we no longer have use for the gospel in our lives. If we are going to endure to the end as we are called to do in Scripture, we must have a daily appropriation of the gospel in our lives. We will have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The gospel is for sinners. And we know that when we become Christians, we do not stop becoming sinners. So we need the gospel. It's not something we leave behind. The gospel message is for unbelievers, but it is also a message for Christians too. We need it every day or else we quickly resort into this um, performance-based system of trying to earn God's favor with us instead of simply trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death for our sins. So by revisiting the gospel often, we keep from drifting into this this works-based and performance-based relationship with God. And we remember to give Jesus the credit for our salvation and we stop pretending like we had something to do with it. So this morning, we will talk a lot about the gospel. Yes, in the sense of how it makes us right with God and brings us into the right relationship with God. Romans does teach us that we are all sinful and totally unable to produce or earn the righteousness that God requires. So we do need the gospel in that sense. But we're also going to talk about it in the sense that how we as Christians can benefit from the gospel message in our day-to-day lives, in our daily walk of faith. And we will seek to remind ourselves that because sinners are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, that we must trust in that faith alone for our salvation. And now I'd like to reread our scripture for this morning and and keep your Bibles open because we'll be working uh, through this passage um, phrase by phrase. Let me reread it for us. Not that David didn't do an outstanding job. but um, It says, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
So this brings me to my first point. Because sinners are made righteous before God by faith in Christ, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. And now, we throw around this word gospel, but what do we mean when we use the word gospel? It's just become something we use, and we may not even realize what we're saying when we say it. But the gospel is simply a word which means good news. It is the good news about God coming down and intervening in human history to save a wayward and helpless bunch of people who are in a perpetual state of rebellion against him. And this is good news. It is good news that God in the person of Jesus Christ came to the earth to die for our sins. He came to the earth to save sinners like you and sinners like me. And this is good news. So when we speak of the gospel, this is what we're speaking of. But then we ask the question, so why in verse 16 does Paul need to say that he is not ashamed of the gospel? It doesn't seem like anything that we would be ashamed of. It seems like legitimately good news. But Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why does he even need to say that? Well, much like today, believers in the church at Rome were ashamed of the gospel. Paul even tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. Let's remember the cross was the most brutal torture device ever invented. And it was so brutal in the way that it, that it ended someone's life that it was something that wouldn't even be spoken of in polite company. And so, while we today will hang crosses in our church and we'll hang them in our homes and we'll wear them as jewelry and we see them as something beautiful, the people in Paul's time would have seen the cross as something completely different. The people in Paul's day, the image in their head would have been of a rough-hewn piece of wood with splinters stained by the blood and other bodily fluids of those who hung on them to die an agonizing death. They would not have seen it as something beautiful the way we do today. So to say that the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, came to earth and was executed in the most brutal way, it was foolishness. The, the, the philosophy and the logic of the Greco-Roman world could not accept that the Savior of the world would have come and died in this way. And therefore, the message of the cross were often points of embarrassment for the Roman Christians. It was foolishness by all standards of the day. The gospel message that Paul and the other Christians were proclaiming was simply ridiculous. But let's go back to the movie I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, Rudy. As I said, Rudy was a young man who wanted to play football at Notre Dame despite the fact that he had no business doing so. But against all odds, he was able to eventually convince the coach. But at first, even when he went to Notre Dame, everyone, including his family, sort of mocked him a little bit for it. And even when he first got there and tried to be admitted, his grades weren't good enough, and so he had to go to a junior college nearby. And the thought of him actually achieving his dream became even more and more outlandish. 
But eventually Rudy was able to be admitted to Notre Dame and was able, like I said, to just convince the coach to allow him to practice on the scout team every week. But still the notion that Rudy would ever be what we would consider a real football player at Notre Dame was still ridiculous. He was small, he was slow, he was not very smart, he was not very athletic. He really had no business being anywhere near the football team. But Rudy was not ashamed of these things. Rudy had no business being a part of the team, but he was not ashamed. He knew he was associated with a very storied and prestigious football program, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and he loved that football team. And even if he was only on the scout team and was far from being a real player, Rudy was not ashamed. Yes, it was foolish and ridiculous from everyone's perspective that Rudy would even attempt to be a part of something so special. Rudy's confidence came not from himself, but in his association with that football team that he loved. And while the rest of the world could not see it, Rudy knew that being associated with something so special and prestigious was important and it was not something for him to be ashamed of. From the normal person's perspective, yes, but Rudy's dream to play football at Notre Dame, he did not consider it foolish. He saw the bigger picture. And in a similar manner, Paul is telling the Roman Christians, this gospel message is not something for you to be ashamed of. Paul says in verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, far from being something to be ashamed of. He wants them to understand that regardless of what the rest of the world around them thinks, their friends and their family, there is nothing for, them to, for him to be ashamed about and the people in the Roman church to be ashamed about with this gospel message. He wants them to speak it and preach it boldly with confidence even in the face of ridicule and rejection. Paul knows from firsthand experience that the power is not in the messenger the power is in the message as it is driven deep into the hearts of those who are made to believe by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's message is a good reminder for us today. Our world is not that much different in terms of how it views the gospel, is it? Many people today consider the message of the gospel foolish. And if we're honest, we often find ourselves ashamed of it too, don't we? So let me remind you this morning, do not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. And also, do not put too much pressure on yourself with regards to your presentation of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not found in your eloquent presentation style, but in the power of the Holy Spirit to remove the blinders from people's hearts who have failed to believe and consider it foolishness. And this brings me to my next point. Because sinners are made righteous before God by faith in Christ, we must trust in the power of God to save everyone who believes. We must trust not in ourselves, but in the power of God to save everyone who believes. But what does Paul mean when he says believes? You know, we often hear people speak of having faith today without necessarily defining the object of that faith. We hear people say things like, oh, well, just believe. When we're going through something bad, oh, just believe. As if just belief alone will change the circumstances in our life. 
Well, belief or faith without an object is not what Paul is speaking of here. There's a commentator, his name is Douglas Moo, and he said it well. He said, to believe is to put full trust in the God who justifies the ungodly by the means of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Therefore, my faith is in Christ and the cross. It's not, in, it's not an objectless faith. It's faith in Christ and the cross. It is in Christ's work on the cross that we find the power of God to save. And it made me think of the story in Mark chapter 5 of the woman who suffered from constant bleeding. And it made me think of the necessity for her to have Jesus as the object of her faith versus having faith in faith alone. And if you remember, this woman had suffered from bleeding for 12 years. And the Bible tells us she had spent nearly every bit of money that she had trying to relieve herself of this terrible condition. The scripture also tells us that her condition had only gotten worse and it actually tells us that over time she spent nearly everything she had and she was no better for it. But one day she heard of this man and his man, this man's name was Jesus and she heard about his power to heal. And she began to believe if I could just get close enough to even lay my hands upon Jesus' clothing that I would be healed of this condition. And so one day, Jesus was passing through her town, and there was a large crowd of people following him, like was often the case. And this woman believing, if she could just get close enough to him, she could touch him and be healed. She fought her way through the crowd. She made her way through the crowd, and indeed got close enough to just reach out and touch his garment. And when she did, the bleeding stopped immediately, and she knew for certain that she had been healed. And she turns and she, she begins to walk away, obviously very excited and rejoicing. But Jesus also realized that healing power had gone out from him. And he began to scan the crowd looking. And he began to ask his disciples, who was it who touched me? And to them that was a ridiculous question. You're in a crowd with a bunch of people, everybody's bumping up against you, touching you. But he, he asked, who was it who touched me? And so the woman, she stops and she goes and makes her way back to Jesus. And she falls down before his feet and she tells him the story. She explains the situation and that it was she who had touched him. But Jesus looks at her with compassion. And this is the key point. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. The woman in this story believed in the power of Jesus to heal her. She was not simply practicing some type of positive thinking. No, she sought out Jesus, the one in whom she had believed, believing if she could simply get close enough to touch him, that she would be healed. Her faith was not an objectless faith. It was faith in something real. It was faith in Jesus Christ. And so, if salvation then is available to anyone who believes in the power of Jesus to save, 
like this woman in Mark 5. The gospel Paul is proclaiming here is for all people. The phrase that we see, the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile, it's an all-encompassing phrase that speaks of all people groups. There is no one outside of the reach and the power of the gospel to save. The gospel is for blacks, it's for whites, it's for Asians, it's for Latinos, it's for Arabs, it's for Samoans, and so forth. There is no one beyond the saving power of Jesus and the gospel. And remember in Revelation 7-9, it speaks of a great multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation that will be gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb of God. Salvation then is available to everyone who believes in the power of Jesus Christ to make them right before God. And again, this is wonderfully good news. This is what we call the gospel. And so when we really begin to believe this, when we really begin to believe that the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, then we too boldly and happily will go out and proclaim it to the world so that they too can believe. This gospel message that we are saved by faith alone apart from works is such good news that we will boldly and willingly shout it from the rooftops regardless of how most of the world and most of our friends and some of our family are going to think of us. Faith comes by hearing. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. And we have the responsibility to give those who are perishing something to hear. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can just live a nice Christian life and that is going to tell everyone around you everything that they need to know in order to become a Christian. That's simply not true. That is a lie. The Bible tells us that the gospel is meant to be preached, it's meant to be heard, and it's meant to be believed. But not only is it important for us to trust in the power of God to save everyone who believes, and then because of that, go out in the world proclaiming it. Yes, that is important. But we must understand that it is God, it is not ourselves, who makes us righteous. Which brings me to my next point. Because sinners are made righteous before God by faith in Christ, we must trust in God to give us the righteousness He requires. We must trust in God to give us the righteousness or this right standing that He requires now, Romans 1.17, particularly in the phrase, the righteousness of God, played a very important part in the history of the church. It is partly due to this phrase, the righteousness of God, that the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century took place. It was in this phrase that Martin Luther began to see that the church's teaching on how we are saved and made right with God had drifted very far from what the Bible said about how we are made right with God. The church in Luther's time taught that salvation was not a result of merely faith in Christ alone, but that there were things that had to be added on top of that. And it, it was tied to one's right standing with the church. Salvation was no longer then considered the free gift of God, but it was to be earned through the church's system of sacraments, and penance. 
And so while the Bible plainly does teach that salvation is a free gift of God, not based on human works or effort, but based only on our faith in Jesus Christ, the church had developed this works-based system of salvation. The church no longer viewed Christ's death on the cross as a sufficient payment for our sins, but had established a merit-based system which basically required all the people to be constantly working and striving to earn their own salvation. But all this stands in contradiction to the biblical teaching of justification or salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. The Protestant Reformation was a protest against the corruption and twisting of doctrine in the church of the 16th century. Notice the word protest in the word Protestant. And Luther really didn't want to split the church. He wanted to reform the church. But eventually the result of Luther's understanding of what uh, this passage really means was the eventual establishment of all the denominations which we include under the Protestant label today. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and so on. But it was this phrase in verse 17, the righteousness of God, that was so instrumental in Martin Luther's stand against the church of this time. The traditional teaching of this time regarding this phrase well, that is alluded to a holy and just God who is bound to bring His judgment upon sinners. Remember Leviticus 19.2 says, God says in that, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But Luther knew he wasn't holy. He knew he was far from meeting God's standards of righteousness. And so this was not good news to him. How could Paul call this the gospel? The revealing of the righteousness of God was not a comfort to him, but only a terrible reminder of him falling short of God's standard. So for Luther, when Paul called this the gospel, it was incomprehensible. It is, if it is only alluding to the judgment of a righteous God, and I am a terrible sinner, and I am not holy, how can this be good news? But Luther's breakthrough comes in the second half of verse 17, which reads, From faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther begins to understand that there's a relationship between this concept of righteousness and this concept of faith and that they go together. He begins to see that in these verses, Paul is speaking of a righteousness given to us on account of our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not just any righteousness, it is the righteousness of God. Luther realizes that this is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. It is Christ's righteousness freely given to us on account of our faith. Again, this is good news because it is the revealing of our new right standing before God. It is a status change. Our status has been changed from guilty sinner to righteous believer. Are you familiar with the movie Annie? I know most of you probably are. And most of you, lots of you know here, I have a daughter named Mary Tanner. She's three and a half years old. And, well, before I get to Annie, for a while she was hooked on the movie The Wizard of Oz. And lots of you have probably seen her walking around in her little check, blue and check Dorothy dress. And Laura likes to take and put freckles on her face. And she's got this Dorothy wig with pigtails. And she has her little basket 
with her little fake Toto in it. And when I would come home from work, uh, Mary Tanner would want to play Wizard of Oz, and I would pretend like I was the Tin Man or the Scarecrow, and we would walk around the house on the yellow brick road and so forth. But she's grown out of that, and now, though, she is fascinated with this movie Annie. And if you remember the story of Annie, Annie is a little orphan girl who happens, her name is Annie after the movie, and Annie lives in an orphanage with lots of other little girls under the watchful eye of a mean old drunk caretaker named Miss Hannigan. And Miss Hannigan really doesn't care anything about any of the children at all. She mostly um, just treats them harshly and talks very badly to them. And so for the most part, the children spend a good portion of their day longing and dreaming of this day when their parents will come back and rescue them from this terrible place. But unfortunately, that day never arrives for them. But one day, Annie, she's in Mrs. Hannigan's office, and she's being disciplined by Mrs. Hannigan for something that she had done. And a lady shows up at the orphanage. And I didn't realize this until recently, when I started thinking about the sermon, actually. But the lady's name was Grace. And I don't really think that's an accident. I think someone did that on purpose. But the lady's name was Grace, and Grace comes, and she's the secretary for this very, very rich man whose name is Mr. Warbucks. And Mr. Warbucks had made a bunch of bucks off of war. They're very creative in their naming. But he, he worked, uh, or he sold military equipment to the government, and he had made a ton of money, and he was obviously the richest man in the world. And so Grace comes, and she's really there on a, a public relations mission for Mr. Warbucks. He's not necessarily interested in having an orphan come stay with him, um, but he wants to improve his image because he's kind of a mean man. But So Annie goes, and she lives with Mr. Warbucks, and it was supposed to be just for a week, but ultimately Mr. Warbucks falls in love with this little red-headed girl, and he adopts her. And so Annie goes from being, and this is all because of grace, Annie goes from being an orphan longing for someone to love her and to care for her to the daughter and heir of the richest man in the world who loves her beyond anything that she could have ever imagined. This is a status change. She is no longer a little orphan girl living in an orphanage, scrubbing the dirty old nasty floors while she's being yelled at and talked down to by this mean drunk lady. But now she lives in this mansion of a house with a man who is her father who loves her beyond anything that she could have ever imagined. And that's a status change. And Paul, in another one of his letters to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, talks about a status change that applies to us. He says in this verse, For our sake He made Him, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become, and here's the phrase, the righteousness of God. That is how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It is revealed by Christ taking our sin upon Him and Him taking His righteousness and placing it upon us. This then is how God gives us the righteousness He requires. And all of this then becomes the foundation 
for the Protestant Reformation movement. We are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. It is not because of our works that we are made right before God. The ringing cry that comes from Luther and the Protestant Reformation is we are saved by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. We do not have the power to save ourselves. The power to save belongs to the Holy Spirit who even gives us the heart that is able to have faith. We can take no credit in this. Without the saving work of God upon us, the Bible tells us we will remain His enemies and totally hopeless. We then do not become right before God based on our own good behavior or based on our participating in a church system. But it is because of our faith that God gives us the righteousness He requires. This is a righteousness given to us. It is a new standing. It is a status change given to those who believe in the message of the gospel. It is a divine acquittal like in a courtroom where our status is changed from guilty to not guilty. Or even better yet, from guilty to righteous. But what does this type of status change really mean for us this morning? What does it mean for our status to be changed from guilty sinner to someone who bears the righteousness of God? How are we to respond to this? Well, brothers and sisters, we are to revel in this. This is the foundation of all of our joy as a Christian. Our righteousness is not based on what we do. We do not do a whole lot of good. Our righteousness is based on who we are in Christ. Our identity with God comes from who we are in Christ. We, like Annie, have been adopted into this kingdom. We are children of God and heirs to the throne of God. And this is wonderful news. Again, this is the gospel. But does this excite you? Or is it just more of the same old church talk that we've heard over and over and over again to the point where it goes in one ear and straight out the other? Does it, does it really grab our hearts this morning? Does it make us want to worship God? Last point, because sinners are made righteous before God by faith in Christ, we must live our lives by faith in light of the gospel. We must live our lives by faith in light of the gospel. The last phrase of Romans 1.17 reads, The righteous shall live by faith. This phrase might be better understood as those who have been made righteous or the ones who have been made righteous shall live by faith. Or simply Christians shall live by faith. So again, as I said earlier, we Christians must not forget about our need for faith in Christ. We who have been made righteous by faith in Christ must live lives that are characterized by that faith in Christ. As I said earlier, the gospel is not merely for unbelievers. It is for us too. We must live our lives in light of the gospel message. We must trust in our faith alone, in Christ alone. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. It does not only save us when we initially believe, but it sustains us throughout the daily struggles of our life. Faith in Christ is not a one-time act. It is a way of life. Faith is key to one's relationship with God.
Faith is not just something that we no longer have a need for. We are people of faith. This faith in Christ saves us. This faith in Christ sustains us. Do not neglect the gospel. Do not ever move on from it. We must allow the gospel to amaze us every day. And all this is very practical. When we are doubting our eternal security, when we have returned to that same sin for the 1,000th time, where is my hope and security? Is it in my good works? Is it in my ability to be better? No, it's in Christ and His work on the cross. There is my hope and security. It is in the fact that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our good behavior. We do not earn nor can we merit our own salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by God's gift of righteousness upon us because of our faith. So my exhortation to you this morning is that because you were made righteous by your faith in Jesus Christ, trust in your faith alone for your salvation. Do not trust in good works to to secure your salvation. Do not look to good works to provide you assurance when your faith is weak or barely even there, as it will be at some point in your life, I assure you. We are to look to Christ. We are to look to the cross. There is our hope. There is our security. Our hope and security cannot be based on what we do. It is based in Christ's death on the cross and what it accomplished on behalf of those who believe. But then one day, One day when we are numbered with that great multitude in heaven from every tongue, tribe, and nation, we will no longer walk by faith. No, we will walk by sight because we will behold the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Praise be to Jesus who took away our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is our hope. There is our security. This is not something that we earn. We must stop trying to gain God's approval with our own good behavior. But we trust in Christ's death on the cross to make us right before God. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Praise be to God that salvation comes from faith alone and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. Forgive us, Father, that we neglect it. Forgive us, Father, that we abandon it. And though we may believe, Father, oftentimes we do not act like we do. So help us, Father, this morning. Help us to be touched by the gospel. Help us to revisit what it means to live by faith. We pray all these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.